0: Well, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, and so if you would turn there, we're going to be in chapter 10 and beginning in verse 42, and we're going to get uh, right to work pretty quickly. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 46 to the end of the chapter, and Mark 10 says this, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, it's important to remember the Gospel of Mark was written in the summer of 64. Like summer of 64. That's not 1964. That's 64. Okay? And this was about 30-ish years after Jesus was crucified, after he'd risen from the dead. And at this time, this same year, in this summer, Rome had suffered a horrible week-long fire. And it had burned about three-quarters of the city. And the people were understandably very upset. And they actually accused the emperor, Nero, that he had set the fire. And he had done so for his own amusement because he was crazy. And so in order to deflect these accusations and kind of placate the people, Nero needed a scapegoat. And so he blamed the Christians. And so the Christians were systematically rounded up. And they began to be persecuted and put to death in some of the most horrific ways, including stoning, burning, being fed to animals uh, in the arena, sawn in two, and then, of course, crucifixion. And so by this time, or at least at this time, most of the eyewitnesses, those who were alive to see Jesus in the flesh, had all been killed, or at least were almost all killed. The Apostle Paul had been beheaded. Peter, most likely at this point, had been crucified upside down. As apostles and disciples are being persecuted and killed, this is when the Holy Spirit inspires John Mark to write his gospel. And so Mark... His portrayal of Jesus is very unique, but that could be said of all the Gospels. The uh, Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is portrayed in one of my favorite ways as a Messiah who teaches. So most of the teachings in Matthew, Jesus is shown as a teacher for the most part in that Gospel. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is portrayed as the second Adam, Right, The one who represents mankind. His humanity is on display most in that gospel. And then the gospel of John, which is different than the other gospels, but the portrayal of Jesus here is one who's revealed as the Son of God, the God in human flesh who saves. And then you have Mark. And Mark, for the most part, Jesus is portrayed as a king, but a different kind of king, a king who serves, a king who ultimately dies. Now, think about this. During the worst persecution in history, Mark retells the story of one who overcomes sin, who overcomes suffering. Who overcomes injustice in a way that would be startling because he's a king who wins by losing he's a king who saves by dying it doesn't make sense which is why the way of the cross is foolish to men because men in the midst of injustice and suffering want to typically fight or flee. But as the first letter to the Corinthians says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. That last part's really important the whole purpose of it all is so though men won't say look what I did look what I can do look how I saved look how I figured it out look how I fixed it he said that's what we're working against because even now I think many of us believe if we're strong enough wise enough bold enough we can overcome any injustice or avoid suffering but in truth if you learn nothing, nothing else this morning, consider this: We shall not overcome until we become humble enough, weak enough, and low enough to depend on God enough to fix what we cannot. That's the gospel. Now, this story in the Gospel of Mark portrays this perfectly. In our text this morning, King Jesus, reveals through the story of this blind man just how desperate our situation is. Now, Jesus is about to walk the 15-mile stretch between Jericho and Jerusalem. He, along with many Jews, are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual Passover. This is the week, though, that Jesus will both celebrate the Passover and then be crucified at the end of. Now, ironically... In the time of Jesus, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, from Jericho to Jerusalem, uh, was notorious for its danger. So much so that they actually called it the way of blood. Because of all the blood that was shed by robbers that would attack different people on the road. So Jesus is literally traveling the way of blood on the way to his crucifixion. And as he's leaving the city of Jericho, he encounters a blind man on the side of the road, which would not have been very unusual, especially outside a very wealthy city like Jericho. What was unusual is that Jesus stops at all. Now, there's a great crowd accompanying Jesus along with his disciples. And soon, we know if you read Mark 11... Uh, or any of the Gospels after this particular story, we have the triumphal entry, right? This is the Palm Sunday sermon. The sermon typically preached right before uh, Easter because he's going to get on a donkey and this crowd that's accompanying him is going to turn into a celebratory crowd that is praising the king as he's walking into Jerusalem, walking along palm branches, people putting their coats down. It's a big triumphal moment. And so, in many ways, Jesus is leading his royal procession on the way to Jerusalem. And the crowds are literally expecting a coronation. But what is Jesus preparing for? His crucifixion. So, he's thinking about about all of this. There's a few things on Jesus' mind right now. As he's considering and thinking about, yes, he's the one who's going to tell his disciples to get the donkey. There's going to be this celebration. No, he's thinking about that. He's thinking about his disciples and all the things that are going to transpire as he gets arrested and the way they disperse and the faith temptations and challenges that they have. He's thinking about his crucifixion. He's got plenty to think about, enough for you to go, man, I can understand if Jesus is a little distracted, if he's a little busy with his own suffering. But you realize he's not too anxious or too busy to love someone who can do nothing for him. Jesus would become victimized. It could be argued that Jesus was the only victim that ever lived, but he is not in this moment Living like a victim, though he knows what's coming next. The crowd, perhaps even the disciples, hear this blind man, and they basically tell him to be quiet. They, like the children that were coming to Jesus, they push him away, like "quiet, stop interrupting, stop bothering Jesus." But Jesus stops everyone. It says a great crowd. Stops everyone for this one person and he says, Let him come to me. Most people would ignore this blind man because blind men and women or blind people were considered really unworthy. And they were considered that by most Middle Easterners because they thought that blindness was a result of some kind of sin that they had committed or someone in their family had committed. So it was like a punishment. So they deserved it, basically, kind of like karma. The Jews, in particular, viewed the blind as unclean, largely because many who had uh, blindness had some kind of discharge coming out of their eyes, so they were literally unclean, but then spiritually they thought they were unclean because they couldn't read the scriptures. So therefore, they really couldn't worship as they ought. The blind were economically impoverished, socially powerless, spiritually depraved, and this is the one whom Jesus stops for. As we saw last week, Jesus truly is the servant to all, especially the least of these that most of us would overlook. Those who aren't worthy of our time. Those who we would say unclean. And for some, that's the irreligious, broken, sinful weirdos. And for others, it's the religious fundamentalists. They don't deserve Jesus. Jesus stops for him. And for all. Now, interestingly, the Romans viewed blindness quite differently. And it's important to think about this because Mark was written largely to Romans. That was his intended audience. So in Rome, blindness or partial blindness was actually highly regarded in the Roman mind. Many individuals actually became famous after losing an eye. Slaves would sometimes actually enter into gladiatorial matches with a patch over their actual functioning eye just to honor and to show that they're powerful. Uh, Mythological figures, historical individuals uh, were thought to be uh, blinded. Those that didn't have sight were thought to have been blinded by the gods as a favor. It gave them more vision, if you will. Mark makes an interesting note in here, and I don't think, I think it's coincidental. He gives the father's name of Bartimaeus. He's Timaeus. Bartimaeus is the son of Timaeus. Now, coincidentally, Timaeus was actually the title of Plato, so he's a Greek philosopher. Uh, He was the title of one of Plato's most famous dialogues and the name of the narrator in it, Timaeus. And in Timaeus... Uh, Plato famously contrasts those who can see the physical world and those who ultimately are blind to eternal truths. So think about the Roman reading this, even if unintentionally, but the Holy Spirit does you know, amazing things through the inspiration of God's Word. But even unintentionally, a Roman would have viewed this blind man as more than just a blind guy. They actually would have been very careful to go like, well, maybe this blind man can actually see something that we don't see. Maybe he has more vision than the average person, and he would have been right. So as you continue, we know that the Bible has a lot to say about blindness too. Jesus had a lot to say about blindness. In Luke chapter 4, this is when Jesus first kind of reveals himself and starts his ministry. He's in his hometown, the synagogue at Nazareth. They're reading the daily scrolls and he stands up to read the scroll. He would just come up and read the scroll for the day. It happens to be out of Isaiah and it says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind. And then he sits down and says, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That leads to a riot where he's almost killed and thrown off a cliff, but he escapes. Later, after his ministry is kind of in full swing, John the Baptist is put in prison. He sends his disciples to Jesus and say, are you the guy we've been waiting for? And this is Jesus' response. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk and are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor of good news preached to them. So healing blindness was one of the characteristics of the coming Messiah, the coming King. It was in the Old Testament. Jesus talked about it. It was important as a sign, but it was even more than that. Jesus did come and did restore physical blindness of people, but blindness in the Bible always pointed to something beyond just a physical problem. All of our physical brokenness so when something goes wrong in your body, which if you're over the age of 40, something has or will soon, okay? When my neck went bad a couple years ago, everything stopped working the way it should. And what that was a sign of, ironically, was not just physical brokenness, it was spiritual brokenness. Death came as a result of a fall. Brokenness in our physical bodies as a result of sin. It should be a great... Red alert, red alert, something's wrong. Blindness certainly is that. We look at a blind person, we go, that's not the way it's supposed to be, even if we don't fully understand how it got there. Jesus healed, yes, physical blindness, but just like when he healed the paralytic, before he made him walk, he said, your sins are forgiven because Jesus primarily came to deal with the brokenness of our hearts. Never forget this, our problems in this world, your problems in your home or in your life are not principally physical, emotional, intellectual, material, political, social, relational, you can name anything, they're principally spiritual. That's at the core of it all. It doesn't matter how educated you get, how wealthy you get, How safe you think you are? You've got a spiritual problem inside that you cannot fix and only Jesus can deal with. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul said, here's the problem. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The Old Testament says in Psalm 115, We talk about idols all the time. He says, look, the psalmist says, Idols themselves are blind. They are deaf. And those who worship them become like them. Blind and deaf. Sin is always associated with blindness. And salvation is always associated with sight. We in the world, apart from Christ... Are blind but here's the extra rub of it we are blind to our own blindness we're not just blind we think we can see which is even worse okay if you are blind and you think you can see you are destined to fall into some kind of pit or go off some kind of cliff because you actually can't see we are blind to our own blindness You should know your flesh well. You should not trust yourself completely because we are blind to our own blindness. But it wasn't always that way. See, God did create a world where men could see. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean that it was just people who weren't blind, I mean, in a deeper way, they could see God, they could see God's authority. They could see God's goodness. They could see God's greatness. They could see God's beauty. They could see God's provision. They could see God's love. They could see it. They could see that they were creatures. What's that mean? That they were dependent. They could see that they were creatures, meaning they were accountable. They could see that God had a certain will for their lives. God expected them to glorify Him with their lives. Before the fall, men could see very clearly. But now the Bible says what? That men chose darkness. They chose darkness rather than choosing the light. They closed their eyes and they closed their hearts to God. Now, men became blind through sin and as I said, they became blind to their sin. In other words, we see in Romans 1, they begin to redefine sin. See, when men no longer see God's authority, and they no longer see God's love, and they no longer see God's beauty, they begin to seek their own way and define their own right and wrong. And the Proverbs warn us against that. It says, like, there is a way that appears right to a man, like, looks right to a man, and in the end, it leads to death. So imagine that. Hey, that looks good. No, it kills you because we're blind. Man's decision to ultimately do what God forbid resulted them in being left in darkness and full of shame and full of guilt, instead of running to God for help and confessing that they had needed him, they hid and then when discovered, they played the victim, they blamed. Ah, it's because of you. Well, it's because of her. It's because of him. It's because of you, God. So like this blind man, I mean, take it literally, he's helpless. He's pretty hopeless. He really can't do much. And yet, unlike this man, most people refuse to admit it. This blind man has a sense that I actually am hopeless. I actually am helpless. Now, physically, Jesus helps this man, but what we see is that he actually heals this man so that he can see again, spiritually. He's asked by Jesus what seems like a silly question Well, what do you want me to do for you? Okay? Now, he could tell this guy is blind, it's not a mystery. It seems like a weird question, but it's not the first time Jesus is asked a similar type question. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll read in the very beginning of John five, the story of a lame man who's sitting by a pool waiting for someone to put him in it because they believe that there was some uh, magic that happened with an angel or something. They would be healed if they get in the pool, but no one's putting this guy in the pool. And he's been laying there for 38 years. At least he's been an invalid for 38 years. So who knows how he's been laying there. But he's been in this condition for 38 years. And Jesus walks up to him and he asks him this. Do you want to be healed? Now, if I'm the guy who's been laying there for 38 years, I'm thinking, I probably would give a sarcastic remark because that's the kind of person like, no, Jesus. I've just been, I'm loving laying here in my own filth it's fantastic right but it's an interesting question like why 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 would jesus ask that isn't it obvious same with the blind man isn't it obvious what he wants well jesus certainly doesn't ask for himself it's not like jesus is like i wonder what he needs what he wants i think he asks because this man might not know what he actually needs And he wants to see, do you really know what your deepest need is? And he says, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And you're like, how is that faithful? That seems like just a good answer to the question. Well, before we get into that, we need to understand that this man is demonstrating some kind of faith. And interestingly, those who at up to this point have claimed they could see are the ones that have rejected Jesus. The rich, the religious, even some of his disciples struggle to see exactly who Jesus is and what he had come to do. But you have this blind man, this obscure blind man, as one of the few people in the Gospel of Mark who see truly who Jesus is, not with His eyes, obviously, but with His heart and confessed with His mouth. And so when we think about faith, I want you to think of it this way. It is faith is the ability to rightly see, to rightly see who I am, to rightly see who God is, to rightly see how I am to respond and to live in light of both of those truths. It's interesting, Helen Keller, famous uh, teacher ultimately, but famous for being blind and deaf and maybe even mute, I can't recall, but she famously wrote that the only thing worse than being blind is having sight with no vision. So this blind man has faith in that he doesn't have sight, but he clearly sees some important truths you go, like, what is this faith he has? What's the content of his faith? We have to go backwards. What did he say up to that point? Well, the first thing he said is, I see that I am blind. What do I mean by that? Well, there comes a time in your life, if it hasn't already, that you realize you are helpless. You are powerless. You are, in some ways, hopeless, To fix what needs fixing. You see that you have a problem, a problem that is too big for you to solve, too big for you to fix. You see that you are broken in a way that's just, just too devastating. You don't possess the wisdom or the strength to get better. Every, t- every time you try, every, every step you take, it's just painful. You just keep missing the mark. It reminds me of this. You are blind, right? You are walking around in the darkness, and you're just banging around because you can't see anything. It's like walking in a kid's room with Legos on the floor everywhere. Dark, right? You've never done that. It's the most painful experience in the world. And no matter how much you try to avoid the Legos, you're going to hit them. You're like, oh, oh, hey, ah, ah. It's constant. That's what I mean when this man says, "I, I see, I'm blind. i see, I, I can't get myself out of this. I can't find my way out. I can't get my way out." And what's the natural response to that? My youngest son, I love him. I gave a shout out to my little girl, so I'll give a shout out to him. One of the scariest things, and I was just like him as a little kid is to get stuck in a dark room, right? It's the worst. And I've heard him before, like, going to the garage and the door just slams automatically. It's like, oh no, by myself. And what does he do? Well, typically, what I didn't do either, you don't, like, just open the door and come in. You kind of you cry out. Because you feel like you're in a situation, I can't, dad! That's what I'm talking about. You're in a situation that is so dark that you're just crying out for dad. And you know what that is? It's the beginning of faith, which is a heart of desperation. I'm desperate. I cannot get out of this. I'm scared. So this guy cries out, he's just crying, he's just crying, ah, Jesus. And then he says, not just I see I'm blind, I see you're the son of God. I I see the son of David. You see, the title of Son of David is, is a messianic title. It's, it's really the title of the king. So he's saying, I see you are the king. I see you are the one who has promised to set all things right, to restore God's rule, and to fix everything that was broken because of sin. About this king, about the Messiah, Isaiah 35 describes a time when the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, right? That is a physical and yet a spiritual restoration that happens under the rule of the king. And so he sees, uh, this is the king. I know you are the one who came to protect, who came to provide, who came to restore. And then what does he do? When Jesus says, all right, come up to me. When the king invites him close, he throws off his cloak. Big deal. Oh, huge deal. The cloak that this blind man has is more than likely the only possession he owns. It is representative of everything that has brought him security. Everything that protects him. Everything that gives him comfort as he sits on the roadside. He sits on this cloak. He, in many ways, is giving up everything that he could possibly depend upon in this life. The only thing he could depend upon in this life. And he's saying, I just want and need the king. That is a heart of surrender. Oftentimes we come to the king we're like, well, I'll give you this part of my life but I'm gonna hold on to this because it makes me feel secure. Truly, when you have a heart of desperation and a heart of surrender, as Paul did, you look at everything you possibly have and go, that's just rubbish. It's nothing in comparison. The only one that I need is Jesus. Yet, he says something else as the content of his faith I I see I'm blind, I see you're the king, and he says, I see that I actually don't deserve your mercy. He cries for mercy twice. Grace is undeserved favor. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. But if you cry out for mercy, you recognize what you do. You recognize that you deserve punishment. You recognize that you receive judgment. You recognize that you are a rebel. See, we like to talk about sin these days. Well, I should say we don't, but when we do talk about sin, our favorite phrase to talk about is brokenness. I'm wounded, I'm broken, and that is true. There are three words in the Old Testament that talk about sin, sin, transgression, iniquity, and each one has a different meaning to it. And one of those meanings is yes, Woundedness, brokenness, like an arm out of socket. It's weak. It can't do what it's supposed to do. Yes, sin has wounded you. But there's another part of sin, and that is rebellion. Rebellion, where you've said, I'm going to rule my own life. And so when this man cries for mercy, in many ways, it is an acknowledgement. He understands that he's not just broken and sinful. He is actually rebellious. He's not playing the victim. Though, maybe he's tempted to do so. Oh, this person's responsible for my condition. This person's responsible for my condition. This, he's like, no, I'm actually the victimizer. I, there's no one to blame for my dark wanderings beyond myself. And you know what that is a heart of humility it's a heart that's willing to own your sin it's a heart that's willing to confess that that you are that rebel that you need mercy and you deserve judgment well the last part that he acknowledges in this content of faith is not just i see i'm blind Not just I see you're the king, and not just I see I don't deserve your love, king, it's that I see that you can heal, that you are gracious. As I said, Jesus asks him what seems like a foolish question, but I think the men could have, this guy could have answered a lot of different ways. But as I said, I think Jesus questions in order to find out if they really see their deepest need? And I ask you, do you really see your deepest need? All of us have different things we want right now. And even beyond that, I think all of us have a thing or two that we believe will save us right now. Whatever suffering, whatever difficulty you're facing, mental, physical, we all probably have something to go like, if I had X amount of money, I probably would, this would be easier. If I had a different job, if I had a better relationship, I wonder sometimes if Jesus came and asked us, well, how can can I help you? What we would ask for. I think most of us would ask for the wrong thing. What do we truly believe saves us? Is it more money? In this case, for this guy, He could ask for money, he could ask for food, he could ask for clothing, he needs all those things. But he understands his deepest need and that Jesus is the only one that can actually fix it. This is a heart filled with hope. With hope. So you got a faith, the content of which, about what is faith? Well, it's a heart of desperation. It's a heart of surrender. It's a heart of humility. And it's a heart of hope. Wait, wait, that's not doing anything. I know. That's the heart of the gospel. It's coming to understand certain things about yourself and receiving certain things about God. Yes, this man wants his eyes open, but even a Roman would read this and go, this guy's talking about more than blindness. See, beyond the physical for all of us, there is a desire to know and a desire to understand, a desire to to see what life is really all about. Because at some point, we hit our Ecclesiastes moment where it's like, it's all meaningless. We cry for meaning. We cry for connection. We cry for hope. Spiritually, I think everyone wants to be set free. And they seek all kinds of things to try and make that happen. We need to stop pretending as if we can find our way through the darkness. We need to renounce our independence and recognize that we are fully dependent on God and it only through him that we'll be fully known. Faith is quite simple. It's beliefs about yourself and beliefs about Jesus. Now in Matthew, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't just speak. He actually touches the man, which I think is beautiful, and if nothing else, it says God's word, Jesus' word, and Jesus' touch have the same power. But more than that, we see that Jesus doesn't just save from a distance. He doesn't send his best representatives to do the dirty work. He actually enters into our world as the son of God and heals our deepest wounds. But he does things in a way that surprise us. You see, the blind uh, were so marginalized largely because um, the uncleanness and particularly the discharge that came from their eyes. So like he was the last guy that people thought, you know, he would help. They're expecting Jesus like, nothing doesn't distract you, let's go, let's establish your kingdom because they misunderstood how actually Christ establishes his kingdom. In this case, he reaches down, stops everyone, says, this is more important than that. This is more important than the triumphal entry that's going to happen, which is really quite meaningless in many ways, though it's a fulfillment of messianic stuff. You guys remember the football verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. Well, prior to that conversation, or that verse, is a discussion with a guy named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. And... He's really confused about Jesus. He eventually believes in Jesus. And he's the one that Jesus says, a man must be born again. He's like, born again? But Jesus actually said, a man must be born again if he's going to see the kingdom of God. See, we think that, I should say these crowds believe that he's going to establish this kingdom. That's not how he establishes it all. You have to be born again to even see and enter the kingdom of God. He's establishing a different, entirely different kind of kingdom. But in doing so, he's reminding us this. A blind man cannot make himself see any more than a man can rebirth himself. Right? We're talking about what only Jesus can do. We're talking about what only Jesus can can accomplish. Now, Jesus saves those who are blind. He helps them to see, and in doing so, he warns everyone who thinks they can see. And the truth is, when Jesus saves a person, when he takes that heart that is a rock and he rips it out and puts a heart of flesh in there, when he opens their eyes to see, it's just like that. It's like when a blind man receives sight and they have never seen before in their life. What joy! Do you remember joy? Do you remember joy? We get, we're joyful about, you know, big things built for God's kingdom. How about a soul entering God's kingdom? There is rejoicing in heaven by angels when someone is saved. When someone sees. Have you seen those videos, which I'm sure you have on Facebook, of the people who are colorblind, and they get the glasses for the first time? I saw one of these and made me ball like a baby. It was an old man. I like to define who that is okay. It's an old man. So I I get guess, I'm guessing he was maybe late sixties. He's older. He had not seen color his whole life. So he's given this gift. So they have these glasses now. I don't even understand color blindness exactly. Maybe you do, but they can't see colors or they see weird colors. Whatever. They don't see normal. There you go. They don't have good sight. Gives them this gift, and they open. It looks like sunglasses. And the guy puts them on, and you, you see him just, like, shake. And he starts weeping. And he's just looking around. He can't believe it. And they have, like, different colored balloons around, because he's he's never seen real colors. And he's pointing. And then he gets up, and he starts shaking. And he's like a little kid. It's like, clapping like this. Like, it looked like he was... Five years old, full of joy. Remember that? That's, can you imagine Bartimaeus, how he felt? And that's not just a picture of physical healing, that's a picture of spiritual healing. Because when you finally can see, you under, you've been given a new heart and a new mind and new eyes and you understand you, you have a new identity that can never be taken away. And a new loyalty means you don't have to figure out life on your own. You can be directed by a Father who loves you and a new destiny to be with Him no matter if your life gets taken away by death or not. So much joy. And it's immediate. Bartimaeus says, it, it says, he saw immediately what did he do next? He followed immediately. I'll close with this. You see, there was actually two guys there. Both the Gospels of Mark, I'm sorry, yeah, Mark and Luke record that there's one guy, but the Gospel of Matthew says there's two. It's not a contradiction. I won't go into explaining that. Both Mark and Luke focus on one, and Matthew reports the whole story that there was two there. Interestingly, though, Mark is the only one that actually names Bartimaeus. So the other Gospels just say two blind men. Now, we don't know what happened to the other blind men, But we do know what happened to Bartimaeus. And why do we know that? He became so familiar to Peter that he told Mark, don't forget to write about Bartimaeus. Or maybe Mark himself knew him. Very specific, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. I know this guy, I know his story. Bartimaeus became a disciple who was familiar to everyone, he was the blind guy that Jesus had healed. And guess what? He never stopped telling that story. In many ways, he became a living sermon wherever he went, right? Hey, hey, Bartimaeus! Tell him the story, right? Yeah, I was blind. Well, I mean, you couldn't see that well. No, no, I was blind. I mean, I couldn't see nothing ever. And Jesus healed me. I followed him ever since. Isn't that the story we're all supposed to be telling? There may be someone here who honestly, you just you want to see. You want to see, and I, I compel you to to cry to Jesus for mercy because guess what? He's ready to give you sight. And I would argue that if that desire is even there, if you're like. I I want to see. Jesus is already grabbing you. He's already calling you. Just go to him and let him open your eyes all the way. You might understand all the goodness he has for you. But for everyone who can see, you can see God's authority. You can see God's goodness. You can see God's sovereignty, even in the midst of suffering. You can see God's love. You are Bartimaeus. You are Bartimaeus. You are a walking miracle. Every person who is saved is a walking miracle, no less miraculous than Bartimaeus' healing of blindness. You can see when you are blind. You I was once blind, but now I see. And guess what? You have a story to tell. Whatever circles you're in, whatever relationship you have, you should be the Bartimaeus. Did I ever tell you about when I was blind and how I can see? You know, if you were blind and could see, you would tell everybody. You wouldn't stop. That is what you are or what you were. I encourage you to view yourself that way, to view your salvation that way and tell everyone you know. I once was blind, but now I see and I'm waiting for my Savior to return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us, your love for us.